0: This podcast is brought to you by Daytonics. There are nearly 100 data providers in your DSP, but only Daytonics can enable marketers to target audiences in cookie environments with scale and accuracy. Discover how to reach inventory that your competitors are missing. Learn more about our game-changing technology at Daytonics.com slash cookie list. That's D-A-T-O-N-I-C-S dot com slash cookie Welcome to Marcus Extra Podcast. Happy New Year to everybody. I'm here today. This Happy is Barry Farrow. Happy New Year. I'm joined by Eric Ronchi and our special guest today, Bill Wise, the CEO of MediaOcean. Bill, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. I just want to add a little housekeeping, which is we dropped a special episode over the Christmas break, holiday break. If you didn't catch it, go into your podcast feed, go back one episode. It was a fun one where Eric and I Gave out awards to the companies we thought were performing the best and also talked about predictions and other stuff like that. It was a good wrap-up episode, but I think some people missed it because they're on vacation. Did so, our flash talking win anything? No? Everything. everything. You were, I think, so the first the advertiser on this podcast, so you get a special flash talking was. Oh, so, so, so we, paid, we had to pay for our win? Yeah, basically. But it was a good deal. Uh, you got a lot of exposure. Aaron and your marketing team is always innovative. He always likes to do the latest, greatest thing. He was on the Ad Tech God podcast. He's on some new stuff. It's, he, I think you're spending your money pretty wisely. We're we're always looking for deals, always looking for deals. <laughs> so, Bill, like for people who don't know you, like, why don't you give us your, your quick background? Because you've just been doing everything like you're like the history of ad tech in, in one resume. How do you get to where you are now? Seriously. To just, just go to my
1: LinkedIn. You can see you can see what I did. Now, you know, I, I, I always like to tell the story that I started my career as a CPA and thank God I was not a good accountant. So, I got into kind of ed tech because the only company stupid enough to hire a mediocre CPA to take them public was an internet advertising company in 1997. So, that's how I got my start. You know, after realizing that, you know, I worked for everyone I worked for made a ton of money and I was just not decided to become an entrepreneur and kind of that's the rest is history.
0: And what was the name of that company that you hired you as an accountant in
1: nineteen ninety so so the name of the company was Ian, which stood for Internet Advertising Network. Bunch of guys from Atlanta. Then they realized they needed to understand Madison Avenue. So they ended up taking an investment from one of the agency holding companies who had a division called DoubleClick. And as part of that investment they took over the name DoubleClick.
0: So a little stop at Right Media, the inventors of the ad exchange. And we'll we'll skip over that, but I'm I'm interested in. I think the audience is interested in hearing the media ocean story because first I'll characterize it, which was there was this incumbent that was this giant company. No one really knew what they did called Donovan Donovan Data Systems. It was like a hugely profitable mainframe based company, and you decided to take them on, and in the process, merge the two and. Became the thing you hated the most, more or less. So, <laughs> give us your version of that story.
1: Good to see you. Happy New Year to you too. So, <laughs> so, yeah. So, listen. After you know doing the double click stint and then going into search for a little while, and then doing you know the first programmatic and right media, we sold that to Yahoo. I found myself there. I think oh, people always thought I was crazy, but when I ended up taking over a software company that processed print and TV buys, I think people really thought. I had lost it. And, you know, and then I would call, you know, my tech friends like you, Ari, and say, Hey, my competitor is sitting on a mainframe. Half their screens are still green screens, you know, and, you know, people would be like, Oh, you must be killing it. And I'm like, I can't get anyone to buy. Right. And that was when I was competing against Donovan. But, you know, I was lucky in that Donovan didn't really invest in kind of the digital business and the digital platform. So we attacked that. You know, and then listen, people hate monopolies. So, you know, eventually you get a couple holding companies to switch over from Donovan onto Media Bank. And then I realized that kind of the ad infrastructure business really wasn't worth it unless you own the whole thing. And you really couldn't transform an industry from, you know, kind of linear, you know, to kind of programmatic and digital, you know, unless you owned all the workflow. And so. We ended up going to all the holding companies and getting them on board with the merger. In fact, the Department of Justice kind of told us to do that or else they wouldn't approve. And so, you know, so we got everyone on board with a standard. And I think if you look at it today, the difference between the buy side and the sell side is at least on the buy side from an infrastructure perspective. And we're talking about plumbing and electricity for the most part here. You know, it's, it's a little bit of a commodity, you know standards are good right on the sell side it's a mess right you know there's homegrown systems there's a lot of there's legacy systems there's linear systems there's ssp's and digital systems right and there's not a standard and it shows right and so i think so so we've created a standard there and then the question is you know commodities aren't great for shareholders the stability is great the question is what do you do with that commodity and so over the last few years we've decided to kind of go from kind of back of the house to front of the house and start getting into the ad tech business, first with the acquisition of 4C, then flash talking and a bunch of other, you know, smaller tuck-in acquisitions along the way. So we're excited about the future. We're excited about, you know, what we provide to the ecosystem. And we're excited about continuing to be neutral, right? Just focusing on the buy side, but really in a neutral way. So so
0: what is MediOcean nowadays? What's the elevator pitch?
1: Well, so MediOcean really, it, what we decided was kind of, to move to kind of a two business unit structure. So we have our ad infrastructure business, which is Legacy Media Ocean, our ad tech business, which is now under the flash talking brand. So even 4C is now social ads by flash talking. And so we continue to just focus on marketers, their
0: agencies and the buy side overall. Back in the day, you used to joke that you, to me, that you only had like five customers but they were all really, really big. Is that still the case? Or was the new ocean? a lot of agencies? So
1: w- when we sold the company to Vista Equity Partners in 2015, the six holding companies were 91% of our revenue. So we really did have six customers that mattered. Today, those same contracts are less than 40% of the company. Two-thirds of, our, of all new bookings are direct-to-marketer. And the ad tech business in the next 18 months will be a majority of the business. So we've really transformed over the last few years.
2: What's been the source of that transformation besides like amazing leadership? Is it <laughs> the, was it the flash talking acquisition? Was it in housing by some of the large sophisticated marketers who want the infrastructure stack? Like we're, we're, you know, what, what drove that?
1: It's mostly outstanding leadership. But, you know, I think, the, I think the market dynamics dictated that, right, where marketers are leaning in and making more technology and data decisions in-house, it doesn't mean that they're actually fingers on keyboards moving stuff in-house, right? That's, you know, for the most part, I would say 99 point something percent, it's still the agency's fingers on keyboards. But, but since they're paying for it and they want standards and they desperately care about their first party data... They are leaning in and, and making those decisions. And so when I say two-thirds of our, of our business now is direct-to-marketer, it actually breaks out as one-third agency, one-third marketer, and one-third marketer through their agency, right? And so th- those are some dynamics that people don't necessarily think about. So in almost every single situation,
0: you're selling to both the marketer and their agency. Going back to the creation of mediation. I'm just wondering if you have any color you'd like to offer. What, what was it like when you met with uh, I guess Michael Donovan? His name is Michael. Yeah. First time, and you you proposed like it was his baby. He had built it from scratch, made a really good amount of money on it. Yep. It was it was a you know a machine pumping out the bills for all these agencies, and you young whippersnapper come in and say you know I want to buy your baby. How'd that work out? Yeah. So so I called on him 11
1: times and he he didn't return any of my calls, and so then I had to start navigating his organization and basically that organization was set up to just protect people from getting to michael and so <laughs> I finally you know I finally got through to him. we had a breakfast one morning, and you know I was so focused on just getting to him that when I finally got to him, it was like, "Oh, now what do I say and so you know what what I had in my back pocket is that we had one starcom media vest away from donovan onto mediabank we had gotten the verbal to move all of ipg off of donovan onto mediabank in north america and then what i had in my back pocket was we got the rest of Google's in the us you know so i you know the conversation and i didn't want to be threatening but the conversation was hey listen you've had a, a storybook career i mean michael donovan you can think of as the, as the original founder of ad tech, right? He, he was the first ad tech entrepreneur. Right. And so, you know, I basically said, hey, how do you want the last chapter of your book written? You know, a startup taking you, taking you out or you, you know, being a visionary, you know, partnering with that startup to then, you know, keep the legacy going another 40 years. And, and the interesting part is like, name a, name a technology company who stayed in power for more than four decades. Right. I the only one I can think of is Microsoft. Right. You know, who, and because it 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 requires you to continually evolve or die. And so, you know, Michael, you know, then turned to me and and you know said, hey, listen, I never expected to run this thing for 40 years. I just never found anyone I trusted to run it. And, you know, his probably only lapse of judgment was trusting me. But, you know, but <laughs> he did. And and listen, I, 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 I joked. I had, you know, my well i had a dartboard with michael's face on it when you know the problem is when <laughs> when your when your name is your company name it's like it's easy to hate the person when you hate the company right so i actually at one point at that breakfast i pushed back to my chair and i go i just feel so terrible i was like my kids hate you and you're such a wonderful man you know and 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 that was the beginning of a relationship between me and michael who that started ever since we now invest in companies together yeah, just super close. He's a mentor, a confidant, and a close friend. Uh, when was it founded?
0: Early 80s, late 70s? It was It was founded in 1967. 1967. Okay, you kept saying 40 years, but actually it's like now on 60.
1: No, so it was 43 years. It was 43 years. It, year, <laughs> it was 40 years, a little over 40 years when I started talking to Michael, and that was like over 15 years ago.
0: Yeah, I I had a relationship with Donovan when I was the product manager for DFA back in the day because DFA had an integration that our customers would always say was like one of the most important features of DFA. And uh, two things came out of that. One was no one at DoubleClick knew how it worked. Like literally there was no institutional knowledge of how this integration worked. It just worked. If it had broken, we would have had to, you know, call some people who had retired 20 years ago to figure it out. There was just no documentation. And it also didn't even work very well. The the second thing is like I I would go to the Donovan offices. I think they were on 18th Street, 17th Street. And one of the things they loved to show us was the loading docks. They have loading docks where trucks could pull in. And the reason was because they would ship the bills. They'd have boxes and boxes of envelopes of bills every month that they would then take by truck to the agencies in Midtown and just deliver the the monthly invoices and reports because they're so heavy.
1: So when we got the approval from the Department of Justice that we can merge, I went around the office and Michael says, "Oh, let me show you the basement." So we go to the basement. There were these ungodly printers, like ungod, like, you know, it would take up like an entire like room, right? These printers. And I was like, "Dear Lord, what is this for?" And he goes, "Well, that's where we that's where we print all the checks." And I go, <laughs> "All the checks?" I go, "This is this is unbelievable." And then he turns to me and he goes, we get a dollar twenty five per check. That's a four million dollar business for us right there. And I go, print checks we do. Print checks we do. Oh so my god. We and by the way, <laughs> we continued to print checks for many many years after that. It was only a f- it was only maybe five six years ago, seven years ago that we stopped printing checks. Yeah. And and by yeah. the way, you know our EBITDA went down a few million bucks and we stopped printing checks. It sucked. What happened to the printers? You know. They're they're in a museum somewhere, but they're they're they were too big. No one wanted them.
0: It's just so I, <laughs> collecting dust in some building. I'm really excited that we've established another ad tech trivia question, which is what is the oldest continually operating ad tech company? I think we we have a very clear winner here. So what's the future of MediOcean? Is it it's been private equity owned? Is it are you on an IPO path at some point? We're going to see you on on Jim Kramer's show hyping up the stock soon. Yeah, yeah, that is the path. So
1: we sold to private equity in 2015. We quadrupled our EBITDA over that whole period of, of about six years. We then sold to a grouping of private equity from Vista to a grouping of private equity, CVCTA and Charles Bank in 2021. And, you know, obviously the last, you know, couple of years has been tough just with, you know, rising interest rates. You know, we, We funded the new, the, the new equity structure with a ton of debt, which, which was cheap, you know, in 21. It's no longer cheap in today's standards. Luckily we hedged a little bit. And so, you know, just kind of, I think if not for the downturn in the economy, we probably would have been public already. But, you know, I think the, the nice part is we have the stability of our ad infrastructure business, which continues to grow at the rate of the market. And is incredibly profitable. And then we have the growth of our ad tech business, which will continue to add. Right? I mean, you know, it's everything from primary ad serving to video to CTV. Creative optimization is a huge part of that business. You know, we're adding you know other features, social buying, being able to do dynamic creative in social and wall gardens. You know, as a differentiator. So, you know, the business is is quite complex. So we tried to simplify it. And I think the other part is. You know, we made a big decision instead instead of being a branded house to be a, a house of brands. And so, you know, having Prisma be the brand for our ad infrastructure business, having Flash Talking be the brand for our ad tech business. And Ari, I know when I acquired Flash Talking, the first tweet was from you that like the single worst name in ad tech is Flash Talking. And you bet me to double. It's a
0: very very modern name. No,
1: no. You you challenged me to double down on the brand. (laughs) I accepted your challenge.
0: And here we have it. It really is something. I mean, today's kid, it's it's going to last so long it'll become retro. And and kids won't even know what Flash means. It was
1: named Flash Talking, you know, whatever it was, 18 years ago, you know, because it was built on the Flash technology, right? And so when that went away, you know, it was the ongoing discussion within Flash Talking. But... Here's it here. When we did the market study, right? We hired Bain and overpaid to, to, you know, get a bunch of feedback. And the feedback was that it was synonymous with, with creative optimization and creative optimization is the low hanging fruit, which is where we land and expand. Right. And, and it's, it's something that we do better than anyone else in the market. And so, you know, it was a strong brand. So we
0: stayed with it. If you're a market or subscriber, you can listen to my in-depth interview with John Nardone about flash Talking. That's about a year old, but it's very, very in-depth and gets into all the different features of flash Talking platform. So you're sort of an expert at the agency holding companies at this point. So I, I think it would be a, it would be a miss if I didn't ask you a little bit about your opinions about how they're evolving. They had a good year in 2023. I'm particularly interested in how you think like this AI revolution might impact them a lot of what they do is charging for bodies and if the bodies go away and get replaced by tech it seems like a threat maybe it's an opportunity do you have any you want to opine at all about that yeah listen i it's an interesting discussion right
1: only because people have been calling for the death of the holding companies or ad agencies for you know three decades now and you know what i see is you know they are continually evolving right so Many of the whole companies have spent billions of dollars having audience platforms, right? Which set them up, you know, to not just buy, you know, brands or context, but to be able to buy audiences. And, you know, agencies have always been good at a few things, right? Always been good at creative and they continue to be good at creative and creative at scale matters. They've always been good at buying TV, but even taking it a step notch, just thinking about investment. And how do you think about investment media? And then they've been always been wonderful at production at scale, you know, which again is very tactical, but is is necessary, right? So, you know, if you opened up the industry trades, you know, seven to ten years ago, it was all about in-housing, the death of the agency because of in-housing, right? And you fast forward, what is in-housing represented? Maybe search, maybe social, right? And the the standard there is that in search there's one vendor that matters, Google. In social, that now in today's market there's two vendors that matter, Meta and TikTok, and maybe programmatic. If t- maybe some market has taken programmatic in house, and again there's a duopoly there in in Google and Trade Desk, right? And so you know it's you know in in cases where you know kind of the buy side ad tech is fully automated by the vendor, and there's a limited number of vendors. You know, yeah, maybe you could take it in house. But like I said, I think early in the program, ninety-nine point X percent all media is bought, you know, for the Fortune five hundred marketers are bought through agencies and they're gonna continue to be. It doesn't mean that marketers aren't leaning, yeah, you know, and making those technology and data decisions, maybe even papering the deals in-house, but it's still agencies' fingers on keyboard. So I listen, I think I, I have been more impressed with the holding companies over the last four years than I have in the previous, you know, four years. And I see, I see the investments they're making and I think they'll be at, a, at the forefront of a- AI, right? Because there's going to be a couple of companies that rule AI from a tech perspective. Then it's going to be about how to leverage that tech to make your operations more seamless. And, you know, and they're in the people business. And so I actually think AI represents a huge opportunity for the agencies, if done right, to really kind of, you know, have some EBITDA expansion. Then the question is, how do you invest that EBIT expansion, right? you know, How are you going to invest it back into the business to then build something differentiated? And I, and I go back to data, audiences, and identity. And so I think the agencies that have invested in an audience platform are the ones who are winning business in 2023 and will continue to win business in 2024. I was going to push back
2: on you a couple of minutes ago, respectfully you know, when, when you walk through like the three things that agencies do really well, right? So it's like creative, both from a production and optimization standpoint, media buying, particularly on, you know, linear TV, but of all kinds, and then, you know, production in general. And I think those are three of the maybe four areas that AI has the opportunity to just flip on its head. But I think you got there in terms of how you think about agencies, you know, continuing to lead in that if they do this right, not only will they, you know, be at the forefront of that, they will probably make that a less people-intensive process, freeing up EBITDA to go invest in what the next thing is.
1: Yeah. You know, and and listen, agencies haven't been the best at investing and or building technology, right? So, I I think data and audiences and insights is, you know, is the secret sauce.
0: You can imagine a world where the agencies are significantly smaller in headcount, but potentially the same amount of bookings. Right. Yep. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about you as an investor, Bill, you're an investor in in architecture. But one thing in particular is that you seem to have a couple of companies that you really almost incubate as well as invest. The Media Walla, UB... Maybe some others. Is it Yubi? We have Yubi on Yobi. our uh, ju- Yobi. Yobi. Yeah, not Yubi. Yobi that we had on Justify Your Existence. Uh, how do you have time to do all this? Or is this just like what you do for fun?
1: Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is I was at a meeting at Procter and Gamble probably 15 years ago, and the single best line in any meeting I've ever been in is one of the people in the in the meetings was like, "So, Bill, what you're saying is promiscuity is a strategy." And, you know, and I had to think about it. I never, I'm rarely stumped, but I had to think about it. And I was like, yes, promiscuity is a strategy. And that was my investment strategy for a long time. I invested in a ton of things. I probably personally invested in, you know, 40 to 50 companies, mostly in and around our space. And then I realized in that business, number one, when you invest in startup, private startups, you know, there's, there's not a lot of liquidity for many, many years. A three hundred hitter makes a Hall of Fame, and it's kind of depressing, (laughs) you know, to like (laughs) root for like you know. So if you invest in forty companies, if four make it, you're successful, right? If four, if there's four home runs, you're six. Four home runs and two singles—that's a successful investment strategy. That sucks. And the other part is, you know, when you're sprinkling out kind of nickels, dimes, quarters, and dollars, you know, to a lot of different companies, you know, you, you know, I don't have enough time to help them all, so. I, I changed my strategy right. from promiscuity as a strategy to then saying, hey, let's let's actually focus in on, you know, one, two, at any given time, one, two or three companies where I have a material stake, you know, something like 10% or greater, you know, where I have a real vested interest to kind of help the company to invest my time. And then I think the other part is for many, many years, MediaOcean was kind of one step removed from a lot of, the the real innovation that's happened across the industry, and so I feel like I have personally kept myself relevant through these investments and my involvement in other companies, and I think that makes me a better leader and CEO of MediOcean because of it. And, and by the way, when when CBC and TA were doing their diligence, this actually came up. They said, "Hey, Bill, you know, it seems like you're involved in a lot of things, you know." And I said, "Well, let's get one thing straight. I only get a salary from one company. I will run through walls for that company." And I'm a, be- I'm a better leader and CEO because of
0: the other things I do. And, you know, so, yeah, that's it. When when BFox was acquired by Comcast, they had all employees fill out a standard like conflicts of interest form, which I guess usually 99% of the time is blank. And mine was like five pages long. <laughs> and The legal department called me up and like, did your boss approve this? And I was like, I don't know. That's your problem, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> no conflict, no interest. Yeah. My
1: favorite quote on conflict of interest is, is I was having lunch with Michael Casson many, many years ago. And I said, Michael, how do you deal with all the conflict of interest? And he go, he looks at me and goes, Bill, if there's no conflict, I'm not interested. What's your biggest home run as an angel? I've been lucky with, with some of these investments, even some of the investments that my actually my favorite investment story was obviously, you know, Jonah and Noah who found in Moat at this point, good personal friends love them to death. And so, you know, when, so when they first started mode, they didn't really need to take money. So they just took money from a couple of people that, you know, they, they wanted along the ride. And so I committed a, a little bit of money because they didn't even want a lot of money. So I committed a little bit of money. And then about a year later, they said, Hey, Bill, we, we never got your check. And I was like, what? No, I gave you my, <laughs> I gave you my check, you know, and then, uh-huh. and then, you know, life goes on and and then, about a year after that, they said, "Hey, listen, you know, we're we're about to do a big, you know, Series B or whatever it was." And we went through our records. We we actually still don't have your check. And I was like, "All right, that's it." I was like, "I am walking a check over, and I'm going to hand it to Noah," and which I did. And and then I, you know, and then as as checks go, it just probably stayed on his desk. So the funny part is, I invested in Mo. I didn't actually give them the cash for three years, but then eventually, when they sold the Oracle, I I got a 38x return on that check that took me three years for them to get. Obviously, they never needed my check, you know. But you know, being the guys <laughs> they are, they honored the verbal commitment I gave them, even though the cash wasn't in the bank. So, listen, I, I, I I've been I've I, been lucky. I've also I've also done some some you know
0: some goose eggs, right? Which is part of the game, you know. Sure. I had a little bit of the opposite story, which I won't go into too much depth, but I'll just say when Double Verify got, got, was acquired by a PE firm before it went public, it was announced. And I got an email from their CFO asking for my wire information, and I had no idea why. I, <laughs> <laughs> I had absolutely no idea why.
1: <laughs> Anytime someone asks you for your wire information to send you money, you don't ask. You just give them your the wire information. I invested in yeah, and thing? and IAS. And you know, so obviously, you know, in in that triumvirate d v ended up being the most successful. So what do I know? but they they listen, all
0: three investments were great investments. I'll just take a break, and we'll and we'll do uh, news of the week. all right. We're back. So after the new year, a bit of a slow news week, Let's talk about what's going on. so, As we have spoken about previously, we're now in the era of cookie-less Chrome. So as of today, 1% of Chrome users globally will not have cookies being read or written from third-party domains. And then it's expected in the second half of the year that they will go to zero. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal today where friend of the pod, Anthony Katzer, Tony Katzer, was pretty harsh about this whole situation. He said, that the industry remains unprepared. They need more time. And then in particular about the reduction of cookies in the second half of the year, he said, and there's a quote, the timing remains poor. Launching it during the industry's greatest revenue generating part of the year is just a terrible decision. That's pretty harsh words from Tony. What do you guys think? Maybe Bill, you give us your take? Yeah. So a couple of different things.
1: One, the goalposts have been moved back so many times here. You know, Apple, you know, got rid of cookies, you know, what seems like years ago, maybe because they don't have a meaningful ad tech or advertising business relying on cookies. Nobody really cared. But, you know, Google has gotten a lot of scrutiny. It's also quite interesting, right? When you think about the EU, the CMA, DOJ, FTC, even when you think about GDPR and and CCPA, you know, it's all about protecting consumers. But the interesting part is, all of the regulation that's gone into this industry has only made big tech stronger, right? Since the introduction of GDPR, Google, Facebook, and Amazon has increased market share. The three largest sellers who represented roughly 60% of every dollar spent now represent over 70 you know, cents of every dollar spent. So, you know, and the same thing goes away, goes on with cookies, right? What really hurts is the ecosystem of ad tech players Who are trying to compete with Google and Facebook and Amazon are the ones that get hurt the most. And so it's, you know, we've had a lot of interesting discussions with a lot of different people across the globe who are interested in this, right? Government officials, anti-competition, you know, because at the end of the day, we now own the world's largest and only independent ad server. And, you know, whereas, you know, Google, Facebook, and Amazon have gobbled them all up. And so, you know, so this stuff matters. And, you know, I, I also think, you know, what's going to happen with identity, you know, live ramp, you know, there's a lot of ramifications of this. And I, I, I -hmm. think it all, all of the, all of the trends and all the things they help the largest players and they hurt the smallest players. And that's exactly opposite what protection wants to do.
0: Yeah, I think that's accurate, and I think uh, the CMA in in the UK has sort of established itself as having a veto power over the rollout of this. So the timing is going to be pretty tight. They have six months to test, and then as anyone who's ever been in product management and ad tech knows, the second half of the year is really like two months. It's really you know July and August when you could actually put out new products, and then suddenly your whole the rest of your organization starts saying, "Whoa, whoa, wait, hold up, we got we got Q four coming, we can't change anything." So it'll be very interesting to watch how this plays out over the second half of the year.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Bill made good points where it's you know h- how many times does the goalposts need to be pushed back right before it's a- enough already. So while I think Tony has a good point of you know why test in Jan and then roll out in second half, like what why why not invert that? It sort of is what it is because there's been so many delays and the industries that have industries had years to to prepare for this. So I think that's on the on the one hand. I mean, on the other hand, you know, sort of like entrenched ecosystem players aside, you know, as a as a VC firm, we've been investing for this moment for years between companies that are focused on identity, companies that are focused on things that aren't relying on cookies, CTV, all of this, you know, you know, sort of like reimagined infrastructure. So, you know, while I think it's, you know, going to be pain for some, I think it creates real opportunity for for others. And that's the thing that, you know, we're, we're focused on right now.
1: Yeah. By the way, we didn't yeah. get into Yobi. We didn't get into Yobi, which is a, a, a huge investment of mine and Eric's as well, you know, where we're, we're excited actually about this time,
2: right? It's a exactly. huge opportunity for companies like Yobi. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird time to be excited, but you know, again, you sort of need to have that, that vantage point as a, as a contrarian investor.
0: Yeah. The best thing about Yobi is that if you talk about it, you can use the phrase vector database, which makes you seem much more intelligent and on top of things, whether you understand what that is. Yes. Uh, So this is directly related to your business, uh, Bill. So um, there's a report in Ad Exchanger that Amazon has been pushing flash talking um, as part of the seismic shutdown. Uh, Do you have a formal relationship with them or are they just like pushing you because they don't want people to go to Google or do you guys actually have some relationship?
1: Just combining the two conversations, one one other thought on cookies. When Flash Talking created, you know, the first cookie less ad server, and we had we went from zero to ninety clients when Google first announced that they were getting rid of cookies. Since then, which is about a year and a half ago, we now have like eighty-nine clients. And so, you know, everyone rushed, you know, to to sign up for the cookie less ad server and then nobody moved after that. So it'll be interesting to see now that this is back on the table. It'd be interesting to see what happens there. I would bet you get another 90. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So talking about that, so so yeah, Seismic is is shutting its doors. You know, listen, I said before we're the only, you know, independent ad server at scale across primary ad serving video CTV and 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 dynamic creative. And so it only makes sense for for Amazon to do their homework and figure out who they're going to recommend a smooth transition to. We all know Google doesn't really provide, you know, many services, although obviously is the, is the obvious, you know, answer to people. I think Amazon did their homework and realized, you know, that we will go above and beyond to service their clients the way Seismic has for the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. So we, we, we entered into a formal partnership with them to make it super easy for people to you know, click a button and be moved onto our ad server within 90 days with most of the data, if not all of the data being transferred over, all the contract terms, everything, push of a button, you're in. So we've made it really, really easy and we're hoping that, that the people who, who have loved the seismic service are going to love the flash tracking service even more. We've hired a slew of their people. You know, and so we're trying to make this as
0: seamless as possible for the clients. You should see if you could get them to sell you the iBlaster.com domain and then you could finally get rid of flash talking. We're sticking with flash talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the other uh, other Amazon news. So this was announced previously, but over the holiday season, they sent out emails to all their customers that Amazon is putting ads in Prime Video. So this is a paid service that now will have ads as well. And then Bank of America, this is also in the Wall Street Journal Daily email, estimates that Amazon could make up to $4.8 billion on this move, $3 billion from new ads, and $1.8 billion from Prime subscribers upgrading to the ad-free tier. So I think I think the interesting thing about this story, forget it, of the four point eight billion dollars. I don't know about that, but like the interesting thing about this story is they they almost are in an advantageous position by just by having ads already and then pushing it up market as opposed to Netflix, which has to go has to convince people who are used to not having ads that maybe they want to have ads to save money. Yeah. So I, I think it's a kind of an interesting interesting dynamic to see how this plays out. But I'd also think that Amazon Prime is not a must-have streaming service, and unless you're really into the NFL or or a couple other franchises.
1: Yeah, listen, I th- I think sight, sound, and motion advertising continues to be the most effective advertising that brand marketers want to get their hands on, and as you know, consumer habits have shifted off of you know broadcast onto streaming you know, they've been waiting for this, right? Companies like Unilever, Procter & Gamble, General Motors, movie studios, et cetera, right? They have this down to a science. And so I think it's it's an opportunity for our clients and and for the ecosystem at large, right? Advertisers, their their agencies, including ad tech players, right? Because there's a level of connectivity, you know, that doesn't exist in broadcast. And so, you know, that being said, the 4.8 billion is... Crazy talk, you know, and, and we've seen how difficult Netflix has had in terms of this shift, right? It's not an easy shift, and you know the guaranteed revenue of subscription. It requires an incredible amount of investment to recreate those dollars, ad supported, right? A lot of people, a lot of salespeople, a lot of account people. You know, it, it, a lot of these dollars are committed annually, so if you miss you miss the, you know, the, the the point in time, you know, during the upfronts, you got to kind of wait, right? People want those national dollars. They don't want to be sitting in local and spot dollars, right? So, you know, so I think this stuff, I think Netflix, Prime, all of it, I think it's all going to look and feel like broadcast television plus, but I think it's going to take
2: years to materialize. I wonder if it takes years or if, you know, moves like this by Amazon accelerate, just like viewer acceptance of ads in these, you know, previously like, you know, ad-free premium environments. Like I had, I I rarely tweet hot takes anymore, but I, you know, put it out there that, you know, this is a, this is a great thing for Netflix, right? Because Amazon moving up market, they have a lot of premium stuff. Like they have like some awesome originals, Reacher, everything like that. Like I'm a, I'm a big fan of this stuff. They start to get people used to expecting ads, you know, in a limited way across those properties. I think it, leaves it wide open for Netflix and that was one of my predictions end of year that Netflix you know sort of lets it rip in some ways i think this could be a catalyst for that so is it this year is it to bills point several years is it something in between i don't know but i think this could be really good and really big well here's an initial data point it, when, when netflix
1: announced their ad supported model one of the holding company not the holding company ceo's one of the media buying global ceos called Netflix slash Microsoft and said, we will buy out a hundred percent of your inventory for the first two years. One, one of the holding company, you know, mm-hmm. the media buying agencies, right? So goes to show. that, that just talks about how needed, how in demand this is. Right. And so I would push back on the programmatic statement, which is, I actually think there's more demand than there is supply. And so this is a, this is a, Classic case of managing the yield curve, right? Now you do need the infrastructure, right? And you do need to, you know, get on the schedules. So I know this is going to sound self-serving, but I would argue it's more in the interest of these companies to integrate to TV buying platforms, you know, such as Prisma, you know, <laughs> versus you know SSPs and DSPs. We don't want we don't want pennies when there are dollars out there.
0: All right, let's hear for Prisma. And last, uh, big antitrust news in ad tech this week and had nothing to do with Google. Uh, this is not big news, but it's interesting news because I, I you know, I like to think of myself as having sort of my finger on the pulse of ad tech, and i would never even heard of this. But there's another antitrust case going on from a company called Deep Intent that is filed to be acquired by IQVIA. IQVIA. I'm not very familiar with that. And the FTC blocked it on antitrust grounds, and a judge upheld it as a temporary block uh, and the quote from this article on uh, investing.com is The FDC intervened to block ICVIA and Deep Intense proposed merger so as to prevent increased concentration in healthcare programmatic advertising. Healthcare programmatic advertising is too concentrated. Anyth- I mean, I'm just like in awe of this. I've never heard of either of these companies, I didn't know this was going on. Healthcare is one of the nichiest of niche areas of programmatic advertising. I'm I'm just sort of scratching my it, head as to why this is happening.
1: Having having gone through being you know blocked by the DOJ trying to merge Donovan and Media Bank as a as a two to one monopoly, mm-hmm. the you know I I can I can tell you that they don't. And actually, Ari, you were involved with what was that? What was that like? Oh God, I, yeah, bizarre voice. It was horrible. Bizarre voice. Uh, bizarre yeah, voice. Yeah, yeah. So bizarre voice. So. I think Bizarre Voice acquired a company that was like zero revenue and it got blocked or something.
0: No, no, it wasn't. It was Bizarre Voice was like 200 million in revenue. They acquired a company called Power Reviews. That was like 30 in revenue. And the thing is, it was too small of a deal to require approval. So it went through. The companies were fully integrated, fully integrated. There was no Power Reviews anymore. It didn't exist. And then the the FTC decided to investigate. And lo and behold, they found some really bad documents from before the acquisition, like there was actually like a document that had the logo of power reviews underneath a mushroom cloud to give you a sense of how bad they were. And the, they went to trial. So they went to they went to trial against the government, th- this company, and they lost on all counts. The, the result of the, the judgment was power reviews had to be recreated as a new company. All of the employees had to be released from all of their obligations they had to be funded, so we had to give them a whole chunk of cash so that it was a viable business. They had to get their customers back. And the, the cherry on top was that every existing Bizarre Voice customer had to get a letter from Bizarre Voice releasing them from their SaaS contracts if they chose to move to Power Reviews, which was just – Dear you know, Lord. <laughs> I'm getting it
1: and, by and, a hammer. And, and, you, did, and you, did, you didn't have to file because it was below the $96 million yeah. or whatever whatever the thing – Exactly. Had. Yeah. So – you know, so nowadays on acquisitions like that, when you even, you know, when you look, so there, there's no sense of materiality was what I realized with the DOJ, right? So when we were merging Media Bank and Donovan, all we kept saying was like, hey, Google and Facebook just acquired the largest ad servers. They're consolidated. They're the largest sellers of media. And they're now buying the largest buy-side ad tech and building it. And they have, you know, you know hundreds of, you know, like thousands of engineers. And, you know, here we are, two little companies just trying to survive in this legacy software business. Right. So we we didn't think we'd have a problem. And yeah, they came in and blocked it because, you know, there they, there's not a sense of materiality in terms of like who will impact. It's like if it impacts this small little niche community, well, then it's, it's, it's a monopoly in this small little niche community and that, you know, so, you know, but it, it, there is a sense of like seeing the forest through the trees. Like you know, would we, the three of us collectively invest in probably seventy percent of all startups in the space, and we've never heard of these two companies. So you know, yeah. by that fact alone, it should
0: get through. Eric, final thought?
2: Yeah, I um just to speak on yeah to speak on deep intent for for a second. I, I was somewhat familiar with the business. i I'd, I'd met the CEO a, a couple of years ago, and it was. It was a vertically focused DSP, or it is a vertically v- focused DSP, and he's been fighting this for, for some time. So the distraction that something like this puts on a, on a business is, is tough. And I think from a market perspective, we need more verticalization than less. We need health-specific, B2B-specific, financial. Like if you think about all of these categories that for a variety of reasons, sometimes regulatory, you need custom vertical solutions. This is taking, you know, things in the wrong direction. So this stinks and I hope we don't see more of it. And, you know, my, my, my counterparts on the West coast, you know, their holidays were ruined to a degree. There was a nice breakup fee by Adobe Figma. So, you know, this has real implications. If deals get blocked, if M&A gets blocked and particularly like on a, on a random basis it you know, it, it, it makes everyone involved in the ecosystem take a, take a second thought so i'm hoping this is here's, an unfortunate one and done
1: here's the other part of it's you know if it's you know you know comcast or t-mobile like if there are these you know massive companies that can throw a bunch of lawyers spend 10 15 20 30 million dollars not a big deal you know even when you talk about mediocean media, media bank donovan to form mediocean you know at, we had a lot of conversations that said god if this went to trial can we afford it, right? Yeah. And we're, we're much larger than, you know, I'm sure, a, you know, a vertically focused DSP is, you know, and 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 certainly Bizarre Voice, like this can kill companies, right? So it, it yeah. actually can have the opposite effect. So as always, Eric, man, a few words, but whenever he talks, it's, you know, brilliance comes out. It, I agree with you.
0: <laughs> All right. On that note, praising Eric. Can we end there, Ari? End it right there. we right there. This was a great episode. Phil Wise, thank you so much for yeah. being here. Yeah, thanks, guys.
2: Always a pleasure. See you next week. See, see you at CES. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your
0: favorite podcasting app.